0: Visit
1: bankofamerica.com/slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, NA, copyright 2024. The Welsh got superior. Alex Poppin, this time, will score the try. I started playing at the age of four. Um, And it was full contact at the age of four.
2: Alex Popham is a Welsh former professional rugby player. He's 43 years old.
1: My whole year, my whole week, my whole day would revolve around rugby and a rugby ball in my hand, playing, training, if not playing in the garden. And you just wanted to practise and get better. And my game was all about tackling. So I just wanted to practise and practise and practise. I was always told from a young age, from the age of four, if you went into a tackle at 99%, you could get injured. So you had to do everything flat out and be dominant in that tackle.
2: But being dominant in any contact sport still means sometimes ending up on the receiving end of blows to the
1: head. I was going through how many concussions, traumatic brain injuries I had. I thought I had two. I can't remember them, but one was playing for Wales against South Africa. We met Mandela before the game. And I woke up in hospital, still in my kit, and was told that I had a huge traumatic brain injury, accidental, on somebody's hip, and swallowed my tongue and had a fit on the pitch. I've got no recollection of that. And then the second one I know happened because I lost my two front teeth. And woke up in the changing room after blacking out.
2: According to Alex, those incidents, plus decades of subconcussive hits on his head, have taken their toll on his brain.
1: I went on a bike ride in September 2019. I've done the ride from my house over 100 times and... It's a loop I always do, and I got lost. I had a blackout moment, and it was a pretty scary moment for me. I rang my wife. I said, "I don't know where I am." She said, "Cycle back the way you came," and got home pretty shook up, pretty upset. Phoned the doctor, and that's where the the testing started.
2: Alex went on to be diagnosed with early onset dementia and Probable Chronic Traumatic Encephalopathy, or CTE. That's a degenerative brain disorder that causes memory loss, confusion and a range of other symptoms. Alex says his dementia was caused by playing rugby. But linking any degeneration in the brain of former players to the sports they've played through their lives is tricky. Many different factors can affect brain health. Nevertheless, Alex is among hundreds of former athletes who've launched lawsuits against rugby's governing bodies. The scientific research in this field is relatively new, but it's growing rapidly. The question scientists are seeking to answer is just how problematic are contact sports for long-term brain health and which players are most at risk. Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist's science correspondent. There's no doubt that playing sports can be hugely beneficial to a person's health and well-being, but can they also cause long-term harm for some people's brains? We'll look at how scientists are testing the possible connections, and if there is an association, can playing sports be made any safer? I'm joined today by two of my colleagues at The Economist who've been investigating this story in great depth, our Britain correspondent, Georgia Banjo, and our health editor, Natasha Loder. Thank you both for joining me.
0: Thank you, Alex. Good to be
3: here. Hi, Alex. Great to be here.
2: Now, Natasha, let's start with some basics. Getting hit on the head is probably never a good idea, but can you just take me through what happens to the brain in that sort of scenario?
0: Well, your head, or your skull rather, is quite a hard object and floating inside, cushioned in a sort of liquid, protecting it is, of course, the brain, which is soft tissue. And uh, when your head is hit, that sort of shaking causes your brain to move around in your skull and that's what leads to things like concussion.
2: Okay, brain moving around inside your liquidy skull doesn't sound like a good idea. And you mentioned concussion. What, what is that? People have probably heard of it, but what's the definition of it?
0: Well, when your brain suffers from a concussion, you'll get a a range of symptoms really depending on how serious the concussion is. Headaches, ringing in the ears, nausea, vomiting, drowsiness, confusion, amnesia. Outsiders may even see that you're slurring your speech, you're delayed, you're losing consciousness. And these are the sorts of problems that can lead to things like sleeping issues, irritability, depression, things like that. And Alex
2: Popham, who we heard from at the beginning of the programme, also talked about memory problems when suffering concussive incidents. Is that common as well?
0: Yeah, that's all absolutely normal with a concussion, yeah.
2: And how long does it take to recover from a concussion?
0: Well, first of all, your recovery time is going to depend on how serious your injury was. But the interesting dimension of this is that the traditional answer on recovery would have been that concussions resolve typically within 7 to 10 days. But I'm afraid to say that what we know now is that this isn't the full story because inherent in the question is the assumption that we've all had that you do fully recover. And what's emerging from new studies suggests that one's risk later in life of neurodegenerative diseases is related to your cumulative exposure to head injuries and if you just imagine a sort of Geiger counter for the brain each blow whether it's a concussion or not is adding up to the sort of lifetime risk that ticker that Geiger counter if you like.
2: Okay that's concerning I mean what longer term brain problems have former athletes been experiencing that sort of leads people to think what you're saying?
0: Well, I mean, this is where it gets really kind of disturbing is that former athletes are now reporting a really wide range of terrible, devastating neurological injuries. If you've not watched the film Concussion, I would highly recommend it. And it tells the story really of how this bit of science started to emerge. And this was in America. And the National Football League was finding that its players were ending up with this devastating diagnosis of chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE, massive changes in personality. And, you know, the sorts of issues that we were seeing there, and also now in athletes in all sorts of sports, particularly now in Britain in former rugby players, Involve really a host of conditions, whether it's dementia, motor neuron disease, Parkinson's, or other things as well.
2: Okay, Georgia, let's bring you in. Tell me what got you interested in this topic in the first place.
3: Yeah, so I'm not a science correspondent, but I do really like contact sports, and I'm actually Not in the studio today because I've managed to fracture my foot playing football.
2: Via a contact, sort of not supposed to be a contact sport, but it happened, is it?
3: Well, I guess there's contact involved, clearly, as I can attest. But, you know, those sorts of injuries, we expect those, don't we? When we're playing sports, we realise that you might get injured in a tackle or, you know, you might collide with another player. The difference with the brain is that some of these injuries can be a lot more dangerous There's also a lot more that's unknown about the brain. And actually, in another life, before I was at The Economist, I used to work with people with traumatic brain injuries. So I also know a bit about what that can be like for people as well.
2: Okay, so let's talk about Alex Popham, who we heard from at the start of the programme, a former rugby player. Um, Tell me about the lawsuits that have been filed against rugby's governing bodies by people like Alex.
3: Yeah, so there's been really a suite of lawsuits over the past few years. In all of them, it's players saying that the governing bodies were negligent, that they failed to protect them from the injuries they sustained. But the two biggest cases are against World Rugby, who's the main governing body, the World Governing Body, Rugby Football Union in England, and Welsh Rugby. And the first big lawsuit was announced in December 2020. Since then, they've issued proceedings. And I believe that there's 200 professional players involved in that case. There was a second one also launched this year involving amateur players, I think around 55 for that one. So that's hundreds of players who are involved. And then there's also other cases in Ireland and France, the main law firm who's initiated proceedings in England and Wales. So they're working with others in Australia, South Africa, and also Scotland.
2: That's a massive number of countries and a huge number of athletes, it sounds like. Um, You interviewed Alex for us. And of course, he is an example of somebody who's played rugby and suffered. But it's not just rugby that's causing these problems, is it?
3: No. So we've known about perhaps some of the risks in these sports for a long time. So the obvious example is punch drunk syndrome in boxing. So there are some sports like boxing where, you know, obviously the aim is to literally knock your opponent unconscious. So you'd imagine the risks would be higher in those sorts of sports. But it really is, it's across all contact sports we're seeing this. We're seeing it in ice hockey, in football, in rugby, in American football and in martial arts as well. So it's really any sport where there's repeated knocks to the head.
2: And is there anything different between these different sports in terms of the types of brain injuries that people are
3: seeing? So my understanding is that the risks are higher In those sorts of sports where there are more contacts and harder contacts, but the outcome seems to be the same, right? Your brain can't distinguish between a knock to the head in boxing or a blow to the head in rugby, especially if you have these cumulative impacts.
2: Natasha, why has proving a link between contact sports and brain injuries in in the larger sense been so controversial and problematic for so many years?
0: For a long time, I think sporting bodies have viewed the issue of head injuries as a bit of an existential risk to them. And that's made them really slow to grapple properly with the issue of head injuries. And when they have, they've also focused on concussions, right, and the assumption that you recover from it. There is an influential group called the concussion in sport group, which shapes policy and it has come in for a lot of criticism recently for having underplayed the risks of concussion and subconcussive impacts and also for sort of lacking in transparency. And We didn't look at that specific issue, so I can't comment either way.
2: Natasha, Georgia, thank you both for now. We'll speak to you again very shortly. I wanted to find out what evidence is out there that links contact sports to brain injuries in players. So I spoke to Lauren Pulling. She runs the Drake Foundation, a nonprofit that aims to connect neuroscience research with sports. I asked Lauren why it's so hard to work out whether contact sports, such as rugby, are actually responsible for the brain injuries we see in players.
4: I think you really need a long-term study that follows everybody from birth to death all the things that they do all of the head injuries they sustain with detailed brain scans at every point and
2: that sounds quite a difficult task doesn't it <laughs> yeah
4: that that would be yeah what you would really like to do but in reality it's it's not that easy so i guess it's what can we sort of justify doing? What can we afford to do? Where is the funding coming from? And as our knowledge increases, that also raises more questions. So then we build out more detailed studies to look at more specific questions.
2: Just take me through what we know in terms of current evidence.
4: So we know there is a link. The extent to which individual head injuries or collective head injuries contribute to brain disease risk is as yet unknown. So an example of this is the field study at the University of Glasgow. So they were the first to show that professional footballers are five times more likely to die due to Alzheimer's disease in the general population. And this was a study that looked at medical records from thousands of professional former soccer players in Scotland and compared it with even more controls from the general population. So this was a large scale study looking at risk patterns, but what it doesn't do is look at why is that risk higher? So then we have other studies, some of ours included, that look more at at the details. So what biomarkers might be increased or decreased in relation to a head injury? How can we look for head injury? What are the rates in specific populations? How
2: do you go about carrying out these studies?
4: So one of our studies, the Drake Rugby Biomarker study, this was a fairly small study, so 44 current elite players, and this one used advanced MRI scans, so looking closely at the minute structure of players' brains. And that study found that 23% of the players tested had abnormal changes to their white matter, which is essentially the wiring of the brain, so the long bits of brain cells that connect one brain cell to another and sort of transports the messages and half of those players also had a reduction in the white matter volume in their brains. So this advanced MRI scanning technology is quite a recent development. It's not something that's a standard practice in clinical practice so it's more used as a research tool at this stage but it's now being implemented into advanced brain health clinics for retired players. So That's one example of the kind of thing that we can be looking at. So looking at the wiring of the brain, using brain scanning technology to see, is this different in rugby players, for example, to the general population?
2: Now, did the people in these studies that had abnormalities in their brain show any symptoms with their brain function, things like memory decline or anything else?
4: No. So the players of the 23% who had the abnormal changes to their white matter they didn't exhibit any clinical symptoms. So there wasn't any decline on cognitive testing in these players. It, there's no suggestion that these changes might be linked to something like dementia, but we were concerned by the results in the backdrop of a number of players in their 40s coming forward with neurodegenerative diseases. So it's sort of one small bit of quite a big picture.
2: Now, are there other findings besides yours that point in the same direction when it comes to trying to understand the damage that's being caused to the brain?
4: So there's quite a number of studies happening. For example, last year, the field study published the first paper from the rugby side of the study and found that rugby players were at a higher risk of dying from a neurodegenerative disease than the general population and by far the biggest risk was for motor neuron disease with rugby players being I think it was 15 times more likely to be diagnosed with motor neuron disease in the same age range as the general population. So there's quite a concern that there is a link but what we don't know is exactly how that that link comes about and what the the mechanisms are in the brain when it comes to a head injury.
2: I guess more generally, I was just thinking about things like people who head footballs. Do we know if that's something that points to uh, damage as well, or is it the more sort of routine shunting about you get in games like rugby?
4: What we don't have data on is whether a significant concussion might increase your risk of, of later brain disease more so or less so than, for example, repeated lower level impacts like heading a ball. What we do know is that footballers have an increased risk of dementia than the general population, and that this differs depending on the the position of play. So for example, the risk is highest in defenders, which you could say is most likely due to heading, but we don't have data that actually quantifies sort of heading exposure and risk of disease. But this is something that we are working on with one of our research studies at the foundation.
2: It must be quite difficult to track the number of times a, a player heads the ball or is hit in a sort of dangerous way during a game. I mean, How do you go about doing that to try to link that with with the other studies you're doing?
4: So one of our studies actually called the heading study is investigating this and can we sort of group heading exposure. So although we don't have an absolute number of times that a player might have headed a ball we're quantifying heading exposure over a career based on a player's recollection which obviously is is never going to be perfect but it's a first step in trying to identify what exactly this link might be between heading a ball and later life cognitive function short of Watching every player and tallying up their heading exposure, ensuring every player is wearing a sensor to track heading and then doing a long term study. It's quite difficult to track and really monitor the exact relationship between heading and later life brain disease risk.
2: Is that something that you see on the horizon?
4: We're definitely seeing a lot more research around sensors and particularly in rugby. I know that's been a major area of investment to track exposure to impacts in rugby players. So I think we'll see that across sport a lot more in the future because it is a great way of tracking a player's exposure. And there's so much more research going into building sensitive sensors um, that might be in a mouth guard or in a helmet.
2: Is there anything in place that can scan the brains of players who have a higher risk of being injured in contact sports before any problems emerge so that you can track what's, what's happening to them?
4: To my knowledge, I don't know of that level of screening programme. So one thing that we'd like to see is the advanced brain imaging that we used in our biomarker study to... Be used to provide baselines for players, but obviously this is expensive. This is fairly new technology and while it's now available to retired pro players in advanced brain health clinics it's not a standard clinical tool.
2: Do you see a future where there's going to be even simpler diagnostic tests for things like concussion or other brain injuries?
4: So I know that there is work going on into sort of pitch side concussion tests or brain injury tests. For example, could we be taking a player's saliva sample at the side of the pitch when we suspect a head injury? And then in the same time, it might take you to do a lateral flow test for COVID. For example, we can see if there's been a brain injury or not. So there is work looking for this kind of tool. But then I guess the question is, what do you do with that information? At the moment, we don't fully know the best way to treat head injuries so for example the return to play time is often a subject of debate how long should a player sit out when they've had a diagnosed concussion we don't really know the optimum time it it continues to evolve as the science evolves so i think this kind of pitch side tool would be a very valuable tool but even more valuable would then be knowing what to do with that information
2: okay lauren thank you very much for your time
4: thank you very much
2: I'm back with Natasha Loda and Georgia Banjo. Natasha, let's start with you. Lauren Pulling in that interview made it clear that the science is improving and there's lots of evidence emerging about the effects of contact sports on brain injury, but do you think anything more could be done to prove the causal link between, let's say, past concussions or subconcussive hits to longer-term brain injuries such as dementia?
0: Well, Besides doing work in animals, we just have to patiently collect data from players as they play and as they age. And that will mean regular brain scans and it will mean investing in this advanced imaging technology for more players. And it will also mean work on biomarkers in blood and saliva. The issue is that it's really hard to know what's going on inside the brain. When a player Dies, it's possible to diagnose chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE, but prior to that point, you can only have a suspected diagnosis. All the other neurodegenerative conditions also emerge over time. And so making those connections is going to be difficult. The way I kind of picture it is it's a bit like trying to understand stellar evolution by looking at different pictures of stars. And You can start piecing them together and saying, well, this star goes to that star to that star. And you can do the same for brains. And you can also look at the molecular changes in the blood. And so if after you've had a blow to the head, there's an explosion of a particular type of protein in the blood, you can then start saying, well, look, you've had a brain injury. Your axons in your brain have been damaged and these proteins have leaked outside and you can start to make connections. So those are the sorts of things we're just going to have to do. And we're going to have to keep doing this until we have a much better picture of what's going on.
2: So the idea, of course, being that if you can identify biomarkers or other clues in a living person, you can start to target treatments and other therapies as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Until we can figure out who has actually been badly injured and what the patient group is, we can't start treating
2: Georgia, what does treatment look like for former athletes at the moment?
0: Well, as
3: Natasha just alluded to, there's no treatment for probable CTE at the moment. That's just not something that's really being considered. There seems to be some experimental stuff, but nothing really concrete. Similarly, as we know, there's currently no cure for dementia. So treatment for athletes right now is is quite tough. Obviously, if you have a concussion, you're told to rest and recover. But generally, the only way these players are trying to manage things at the moment is through things like therapy, finding ways to manage their symptoms, but ultimately in the knowledge that what they're suffering from is currently irreversible.
0: And going to get worse. And going to get
2: worse, exactly. Okay, thank you both very much. Coming up, we'll look at how contact sports could be made safer. First, though, I wanted to ask you both what you've been reading recently in The Economist. Natasha? Natasha?
0: Well, I am going to put in a shameless plug for a piece that Georgia wrote, actually. And she didn't put me up to this, but I really like the piece she wrote about the use of technology in the National Health Service. And this is looking at how the health system is trying to manage the flow of patients in A&E and freeing up beds and just generally making the world a better place. That sounds
2: very interesting. Georgia, once you've picked yourself up the floor after that compliment, what, what have you been reading recently?
3: Yeah, gosh. Thanks, Natasha. That's very, very kind. So I am going to plug our coverage in general on the war in Ukraine. So as we all know, it's coming up for a year since the war began. And so we've got a big special. I think it's 12 pages in our main issue. So, yes, recommend that
0: everyone goes and reads that.
2: Yes, absolutely. Seconded.
0: And there's a podcast as well next year in Moscow.
2: Yes, indeed, Natasha. And the first episode of that comes out later this week. You can read or listen to all of that by taking out a subscription to The Economist. Find your best introductory deal at theeconomist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll be back in a moment.
3: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
4: Forty five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Today on Babbage, we're investigating the evidence behind whether contact sports can cause long term brain injuries. With me to explore this are The Economist's Georgia Banjo and Natasha Loder. Georgia, you told us earlier about the various lawsuits that former rugby players have brought, claiming that the sport's governing bodies haven't done enough to protect players. How are they hoping to prove their case?
3: Yeah, so what they're trying to do is prove causation. And as we've mentioned already, that's incredibly difficult. So the governing bodies say the evidence isn't there yet to link the head impacts that rugby players can sustain to neurodegenerative diseases. World rugby does say that it designs policy as if there is a link, but that's not so much help in the lawsuits. So I guess the one thing to mention is that in the lawsuits, all that's needed to prove causation is that on the balance of probabilities, what happened 20 years ago caused these problems that they suffer from now. So that's still obviously very tricky you know, medical records 20 years ago often aren't still around. There's all the kind of problems that we've discussed. But that is somewhat easier than trying to prove what science hasn't already yet proven.
2: And Natasha, how does science and medical research fit into this?
0: Well, has kind of touched on it. They're going to argue that there's overwhelming evidence that contact sports cause brain damage. And they have hundreds of players, not just one or two. It's a large cohort of people. And they're largely under the age of 50 and have these neurodegenerative diseases. And that is indeed quite unusual. They'll also argue that this sort of issue has been around for a long time and the sporting bodies not only knew it was a risk, but they decided not to do anything about it and decided not to take action. They'll be trying to make it out like a sort of tobacco kind of case.
2: Georgia, is there any precedent for the lawsuits that we've been talking about?
3: Yeah, so I guess the kind of really big example is the NFL. In 2013, The NFL agreed to settle a lawsuit with American football players. Since then, they've paid out over a billion dollars to players who suffered injuries playing American football. There was also another case in ice hockey in America, and that was settled in 2018. So there's definitely precedent for cases like this.
2: How have rugby's governing bodies actually responded to these lawsuits so far? What have they been telling you?
3: So I've spoken to World Rugby, They've told me that they don't actually know too much detail about these lawsuits, so they're still waiting for more information. They've told us that player welfare remains their number one priority. They say they have a six-point plan to improve player welfare, and that includes a range of things from investing in scientific research into concussions to reviewing existing guidelines and supporting former players.
2: Has rugby as a sport evolved or changed given the medical evidence that we've been made aware of?
3: So I think there's no doubt that changing medical evidence, and I think it should also be said, the lawsuits themselves are already having a big impact. So World Rugby say they are reviewing the height at which players can tackle from to move it lower down. They say they're piloting their own brain health services and they're about to launch a consultation with those across the sport to kind of see what more they could be doing. And I think there's other things as well. So there's now guidance that players in training should do no more than 15 minutes of contact time per week and lots of kind of other initiatives that are supposed to make the sport safer. But I guess the one thing to say to all of that is that although this is clearly big progress, a lot of the former players don't think it's anywhere near enough. So Alex Popham, who we heard from earlier, He told me that he thinks the rules should be going a lot further than they currently are. He, along with his wife, are doing a lot to try and raise awareness of the risks in rugby and have their own campaign to improve the game and make it safer.
1: We both still love rugby and we want it to survive, but for it to survive, it just needs to be made safer. And the current state of affair with rugby is it's not safe. And with small changes... It could be made safer, but the majority of the damage is done in training. And the length of the season, the number of games players play, all those things can be managed. So the game could still be the physical gladiators out there.
3: So what is it exactly that you'd want to see?
1: We want baseline testing that if there is a traumatic brain injury, they don't return until they've hit those baseline levels. Because at the moment, it's finger in the air, player led... Saying, how are you feeling? Have you got any symptoms? Most players, as I said, they're gladiators. They want to be out there, they're fighting for their place in the team, their next contract, them to get international honors. They don't want to show any weakness. They'll say they're they're fine. We've looked at the number of substitutions that substitutes should only be used if there's an injury. Cause at the moment, like South Africa bring on the bomb squad and there's six fresh twenty two stone players who keep the impacts high. So if there was only subs through injuries, the players who started the game would have to last the 80 minutes so they wouldn't be as big and have as much muscle because they would have to run around for 80 minutes. I was watching the other day, somebody sent me a try of me scoring against France in Paris and I scored this try and it was a good try, I was pleased. And then their number eight just come and smashed me on the back of the head for scoring the try and a bit of a cheap shot and I've got I mean, that that was a a subconcussive hit. And there was no warning to him as a player. That was just part of the game.
3: Can I ask you about the governing bodies, Alex? I mean, what are you hoping to see from these lawsuits?
1: I think people deserve compensation for what has gone on. But if an offer comes to us to settle at a court, we will only settle if certain things are put in place to make it safer for the current and future generations.
3: So it's not Uh, enough for you to get a settlement? You want change in the sport?
1: Yeah, we want change 100% because how can I still watch rugby? And I struggle. I watch rugby through different eyes now with what I know with not helping current players and future generations. There's been suicides. I've spoken to parents of people who've lost children After a traumatic brain injury, it happens a lot more frequently than people realise. We want care and support for the ex-player and their family, education, and then independent research that 100% of the research gets released for people to, to make their own minds up on.
2: Natasha, Alex there was very clear what he wanted from the lawsuits. Coming from a medical standpoint, how do you think that rules could potentially change? Should we even be, for example, letting kids play these sports if they're as dangerous as perhaps Alex is suggesting?
0: I think the rules of sport do need to change to accommodate what the medicine is telling us. One of the things that we heard from the Drake Foundation, which has spent a lot of money supporting Concussion research is that rugby has become more dangerous because the players are bigger and the sport has to respond to what's going on around it to try and make it safer. With regards to children, let's be clear about one thing. Most of the work and evidence we've been talking about in the programme has actually come from work on professional players, and it's not easy to draw a straight line to youth sports. That said, it seems inconceivable to me that a head injury in a young child is a good thing to have. And so I do think that head contact needs to be eliminated where possible in children's sports. And I know that isn't what a lot of sporting bodies will want to hear, but this is what the parents are saying. They don't want their children getting head injuries. I don't understand why it's necessary for children to be put into obligatory contact sports, certainly not in primary schools. Why are they playing contact rugby? Why are they heading balls and football? Their brains are delicate and they're developing and we have no idea what's going on. One of the counter-arguments has long been it's really important that children get healthy exercise and the cardiovascular benefits of sports are huge and will also bring about benefits to the head. And I would argue, yeah, absolutely. There's also plenty of sports you can do without getting your brains knocked about. You can even play tag rugby. So no, I'm not. I mean, I did have one question actually for Georgia who plays football. Do you head the ball? Ha, I don't
3: head the ball actually. And I've kind of decided not to, I guess, since I've started playing again.
0: Is that because you're worried about the risks of head injury?
3: Yeah, so I think perhaps maybe I'm a little bit more aware, given my own background of working with people with head injuries. But we're also actually, there are some games now in the amateur community side where they tell you not to head the bull. So there is some sign that that's changing as well already.
2: George, just... Let me bring you in on the uh, question of whether rules in contact sports uh, should change and whether kids should be playing them. Do do you have any further thoughts after working on this piece and also talking to
3: Alex? Mm, I I think this is really fascinating because it has huge implications for the sport. I mean, I don't think what we see now, we don't see kids playing full-on contact rugby from the age of four like Alex was doing. That does seem to have changed. We've seen, as we've mentioned, that other things have changed as well within the sport. But even with all of that progress, I think some significant questions remain about whether particularly kids should be playing it. Just on the concussion protocols, which have been introduced in rugby and in other sports as well, like ice hockey, these are clearly a very good thing, but there are still problems with them. So even when these things are introduced, there's no guarantees that they will work as they're intended to. We hear stories about people flunking some of the normal cognitive baseline tests so they don't appear as concussed when they're tested for it. This is common with high school athletes in America.
2: So they're pretending in in the the normal situations, they're pretending to be at a lower level so that if they do have to do the tests while they are concussed, they're not gonna be thrown off the team. This is what Alex was talking about. You know, the athletes want to be doing this and want to be at the best and at the highest levels. And so there there is a tension.
3: Totally. For many of them, this is, you know, the best part of their week. For many, this is your livelihood on the line. So there are huge implications for the players and also for the teams, right? You know, if your star player is concussed and you've got five minutes left, I mean, I'm you know i not saying that any teams have done that, but obviously the temptation would be high to keep them on the pitch. So I think we have to kind of be honest about some of those tensions, particularly when children are concerned. We have to, I think, be as cautious as possible But as Natasha said, there's obviously lots of brilliant benefits to taking part in these sports.
2: Natasha, we started off this episode trying to explore how the scientific evidence is improving and how far that can go in actually linking contact sports with brain injuries so far. I mean, we've gone some way to doing that, but there seems to be a huge amount still to do to make the the argument much more convincing. Uh, I just wonder where you think the big gaps are from a scientific perspective that need to be filled sooner rather than later.
0: Well, I'm afraid it's one of those unsatisfying answers where the correspondent just says, well, we need more research, because the truth is we do need more research. We just have these huge gaps in our understanding of how brain disorders start and continue and progress and what level of knock is going to create an injury, the contribution of genetics and things like that. So I'm afraid we're very much in the dark about some of the key questions that we need to answer.
2: I guess, Natasha, also, this just highlights how little we actually know about the brain.
0: Yeah, I wrote a piece earlier this year about the brain, and someone said to me that the study of the brain was like 20 years behind that of, say, our understanding of cancer. I'm not sure how accurate that is, but that gives you some impression of how little we really know at a molecular level what's going on. But in advancing our knowledge of injuries in sport, the benefits will be really broad. Brain injuries happen in all walks of life. We want to get to a position where you can have a head injury and then maybe have a saliva or blood test, maybe a genetic test. And then someone can come up to you and say, this is your personal risk of developing a neurological disorder later in life due to this injury or or this is what you need to recover best from this injury and and that's kind of where we need to go but we're only starting to take the first baby steps towards that future.
2: Natasha, Georgia thank you both very much for your time.
0: Thank you. Thanks Alok.
2: Our thanks also to Alex Popham and Lauren Pulling and thank you for listening. Make sure you look out for Georgia and Natasha's article about all of this in an upcoming edition of The Economist. If you can't wait for that, you can read a recent story from our sister magazine, 1843, which was written by a former ice hockey player about how concussion affected his life in some unimaginable ways. There's a link to that piece in the show notes. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Alok Jha, and in London, this is The Economist.
0: Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. From a local business to a global corporation
1: partnering with bank of america gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools award-winning insights and business solutions so powerful you'll make every
0: move matter visit bank of banking for business to learn more
1: what would you like the power to do bank of america na copyright 2024